Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Regular listeners will know that last week we had an interview with the filmmaker Don Johnson on his new documentary on the transgender movement called Disconnected. We're going to be doing a bit of a series over the next several weeks on this issue, because especially with the prominence of the transgender issue during the midterms, but also the pushback coming from various states, from activists, from journalists, We're in a bit of a moment right now, and we're going to try to dissect what that moment might be over the next several shows. We have some shows with detransitioners booked as well. One of them got pushed back, but we should have that for you soon. And today we're going to be discussing the gender ideology and the extent to which it spread with Brendan Showalter, a senior investigative reporter for the Christian Post. I've been following his work for quite some time, and he's done fantastic reporting on this issue for several years now. He's both a journalist and a podcaster with the CP with a focus on this issue, which, as you'll be able to tell from our conversation, he's very passionate about. He's got a bachelor's degree in international studies in Spanish from Bridgewater College of Virginia, a master's of arts and human rights from the Catholic University of America, and he is a fellow of the John Jay Institute for Faith, Society, and Law, as well as a graduate of the three-year program at the Bethel School of Ministry in Reading, California. He's got some really interesting insights, and he's been tracking this issue now for years. He went on Tucker Carlson and discussed this issue and and partook in one of Tucker's documentaries on transgenderism. And so I was really pleased that he made the time to come on this show and to discuss both his work and what we all need to know about what's going on in our culture. All right, Brandon, just to start off, maybe could you kind of explain how you got involved in this issue? I've been following your work for quite a while, and you're one of a handful of journalists who's been on the gender ideology beat for quite some time now. I've seen your work in Christian Post. You've been on Tucker Carlson. You've broken a lot of stories. How did you end up in this sort of field of research? I was indeed on in Tucker Carlson's most recent documentary and have been covering these issues for a while, but it really started for me back in 2016 and 2017. The 2016 was where I first saw how language was being manipulated in the legacy media and the corporate press. I was so confused. They were referring to males as she and her when I was the, the incursion of this ideology into news coverage. And that was so confusing. I would read an article and I couldn't even understand what was going on because I didn't understand what they were doing with the language. But then I learned about how much this medical experimentation had progressed. And when I learned what blockers were in early 2017, I, as I have often said in other interviews that I've done, something inside me snapped. And it was just this visceral kind of horror that wouldn't leave me alone. And I knew I couldn't go away. So there are many contributing factors to what we see now in our current moment, but it was for me, it was learning what was happening to children and seeing the corruption of language within the news media that really set off the internal alarm bells. And thankfully, I have great editors here at the Christian Post that have shared my concerns and they've backed me up ever since. I've noted before on on my own blog, actually, that the Christian Post has been one of the few publications that's been out on this early, consistently, and breaking a lot of the stories. What was kind of your path into journalism, just so people have a bit of context for how your career has unfolded? It was kind of a strange thing. I wasn't planning on going into journalism, really. I started mopping floors and scrubbing toilets as a church janitor in 2015. I was in ministry school, and I was thinking about what I should do next and felt the call to come back to Washington, D.C. I had lived here previously, but I started blogging about a couple of different things. And then about a year later after that, I 
stumbled upon this opportunity that Christian Post was hiring reporters. And I just thought, well, I'll, what the heck, I'll give it a shot. And really, that's how I fell into this. It wasn't by any sense of, I want to be a journalist. It was just, I was wanting to do something different. And I saw an opportunity and I just jumped in. So it was never really something I ever foresaw or planned. It's just kind of where I believe the Lord and his providence led me. And so the rest is history. I My first day on the job, believe it or not, during my trial period was the day after the Pulse nightclub massacre in Orlando, Florida in June of 2016. So I was immediately thrown in, you know, sort of a baptism by fire, covering a lot of these hot button touchy social issues pertaining to all things LGBT. But that was approximately a year after the Obergefell ruling and everything had seemed to move on to the T in the acronym. Everything had moved on from LGB and just transgenderism was starting to really take off in culture and was more visible. Laverne Cox and Bruce Jenner had both appeared on prominent magazines. And there was all this talk of transgender rights and the ideology that undergirded it. And I saw how that was just taking over everything. And when I realized the full scope of what was going on, because there's not a single sphere of culture where this ideology has not touched and brought ruinous corruption, again, I just knew I couldn't look away. And we at the Christian Post have taken a very strong stand that we believe that this ideology is incredibly destructive and that women and children are suffering disproportionately from it, but this really destroys everything, including men and boys. And uh, again, I mean, prisons, sports, the medical system, civil rights, public records. I mean, this gender ideology destroys everything, everything. Let's talk history just for a moment. Because So last week we talked to, to Don Johnson about his great new documentary, Disconnected, where he takes a look at some of the things you did and has some great interviews with with the transitioners kind of tracing their journey you mentioned the the magazine covers there with bruce jenner posing as caitlin jenner i believe that was on the front page of glamour vanity fair vanity fair right and the other one would be the transgender tipping point cover on time magazine with laverne cox who was an actor in the orange is the new black and it, it's it's easy to forget now that that like tr- that the trans thing wasn't that big of a thing in in 2016 yet. I my first book was published in 2016 called The Culture War. I had a chapter on the LGBT movement. I had maybe a page, kind of dealing with the transgender movement because it really hadn't taken over the way it has now. How did they manage to go from these the couple of of magazine covers? to the sort of omnipresent movement they are now in charge of one entire political party, almost every major educational institution, all of entertainment. How did it go so fast in your estimation? Well, there are many reasons for that. When you can capture most major media organs, you can do a whole host of things. You can do a lot of damage. You can psychologically manipulate the masses, the public. And unless you're grounded in the material reality of biology, and if you're Christian, your faith, and we know these transcendent truths that were made male and female in God's image. The other thing that can't be ignored is the billions and billions of dollars that come from the medical industry, pharmaceutical companies, big tech, all of the real moneymaker places where there's a lot of coin. They're churning out the same messages through the media that this is a glamorous, wonderful, cool identity to be, to be the opposite sex or to be some any number of quote unquote gender identities. So the the lethal combination, I believe, is just this constant media messaging and backed up with pharmaceutical and medical industry money. And if that sounds like a tinfoil hat conspiracy theory, let me just explain it this way. 
is you can put a child on blockers and then hormones and then perhaps a disfiguring surgery and not necessarily in that order because sometimes we just see these teenage girls getting their breasts cut off at very young ages before they've ever had any hormone intervention. You've got a medical patient for life. These drugs are very expensive. We're talking about millions and millions of drug sales. So there's a lot of money to be made here. And you know, Planned Parenthood is, of course, in on this scheme. They're passing around testosterone like it's candy. I know of cases where girls have gotten it gotten it after a 30 minute telehealth call. I mean, <laughs> it's just so crazy. And so it behooves us to ask, given all the power and the constant messaging and the influence, well, who stands to benefit from this? Who stands to profit from this? It's certainly not the, the young people who are being harmed. And in this past year, especially, we've seen a lot of what they call detransitioners put their heads above the parapet and make a splash in the media. More of their stories are occurring in mainstream publications now, finally, because I think the harms are so unignorable. But there's a lot of money, there's a lot of power, there's a lot of people in high places that are pushing this relentlessly. And just about the only place of dissent that you will find is in small O Orthodox Christian parishes. Some radical feminists have been raising the alarm about this and a few other sort of free thinking dissenters who this just strikes all the alarm bells in, in them because they know a medical scandal when they see them. I'm in touch with African-American population and Jewish people who just, this is just setting off all of their their triggers because they, they see such unethical practices happening and they're sensitive to it in light of past chapters in history that are pretty ugly with medical scandals. And rightly so. It's understandable. Yes, I want to get into the medical thing in just a moment because Don Johnson mentioned it as well. But first, I wanted to ask your opinion on, you You know, you mentioned that it's basically been a handful of publications. That would include, you know, the Christian Post, which I think was out front on this issue, unlike other publications. And I wrote that years ago already. I noticed the coverage in CP. But now, just in the space of a couple of weeks, you have the New York Times publishing uh, a piece uh, noting that puberty blockers are leading to a reduction in bone density in those who are taking it, which is, again, it's the sort of thing that those who understand science would understand, right? For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. The idea that you could ever pause a natural process like puberty without without repercussions was always ludicrous to anybody who thought about it for more than a few minutes. And so despite the fact that that article was loaded, loaded with provisos, they did actually tell the stories of a couple of families who were deeply damaged by this, including one one young person who's basically fundamentally disabled as a result of taking puberty blockers, right? The, the, the damage done to, to his spine means he'll probably be in a wheelchair. And then you had Reuters come out and ask a question that nearly got Abigail Schreier, the author of Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters, unpersoned. You know, they tried to get her book banned. They tried to get her kicked off Twitter just for merely pointing out that there's a massive number of girls that are moving towards this practice. And now Reuters, you know, they're still using all the the transgender approved language. Like I noticed their article started by talking about, you know, people assigned female at birth. But they're still asking a question that nobody was allowed to ask like 15 minutes ago. So if you combine that with the fact that Elon Musk is definitely releasing a lot of the critics of gender ideology once again, Megan Murphy, the, the, the radical feminist here in Canada who had been protesting these things, Jordan Peterson, the Babylon Bee, Andrew Sullivan may, kind of posted the New York Times article and said the herd moves. And I, I'd love to believe that's true. A little bit cautious considering the extent of institution capture. Would you say we're in a sort of a reversal moment, a backlash moment where based on your journalistic career on this on the subject, would you say we are? 
I would like to say yes, but it's a very cautious yes. And I'm not going to get too confident because until, until this house of cards collapses and not one moment sooner, I'm going to continue to keep reporting truthfully and pushing back against this. It is encouraging to see those signs, and I'm grateful for Megan Murphy and the Babylon Bee and others to be let back onto Twitter. The Christian Post, believe it or not, is still frozen out of Twitter because we called Rachel Levine, Richard is his real name, a man, which he is. And for that, we were frozen out and still haven't been unfrozen. So I don't know. They, these are good signs, but I was so angry at the New York Times because while it is a good thing that they are finally starting to introduce some scrutiny about blockers, I was reporting about the loss of bone density back in 2018 and even before. This is, <laughs> we've known this for years, and I think it's just a testament to the few publications that have refused to shut up about it. And there have been so many, you know, victims of this medicalization say, you must listen to us, that they finally just either, I don't know if it was sort of a case like in the Bible. The, the persistent widow who went to the unjust magistrate and they just wore people out with their, their complaints that the media wasn't accurately covering this, that they finally decided to do that, or whether they think they're going to get ahead of a barrage of lawsuits with Chloe Cole now suing Kaiser Permanente Oakland and the other things that are starting to bubble up. I don't know. I'm glad to see it, but I'm not going to get overconfident. And um, it's, you know, ultimately as a Christian, I believe that we are in a spiritual battle you know, Ephesians 6 is sort of the backdrop wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in high places. That's that's kind of what informs me as I continue to do my own reporting. But we'll see. I, I do believe God in his infinite wisdom and sovereignty. He doesn't, of course, Jesus doesn't take too kindly when you hurt children. And so I, I believe somehow this work of wickedness is going to be destroyed and it needs to be thrown on history's ash heap because it's one of the worst medical scandals the world has ever seen in my estimation. And I'm proud to work for a publication that has said so from the very beginning. Now, that's interesting because that, that leads me to another question I wanted to ask you, because when the New York Times piece came out, it crossed my mind that maybe just maybe they're looking at the UK and the new NHS guidelines, which even even discourages social transitioning, looking at Finland, looking at these other countries that are starting to reject the affirmative model. And I wondered if maybe there was a discussion in the editorial boardroom that said, you know what, we've kind of gotten completely behind this transgender thing. Maybe it would be smart for us to seed a few articles you know, into our into our lineup here so that if this thing does come down like a house of cards, and for me, the, the most apt comparison would probably be the eugenics craze, that maybe it's important for us to have plausible deniability. So if this thing does come down, we can say, no, no, look, we, we were fair in our coverage. We accepted the lived experiences of transgender people. But look, here's an article on bone density. We were saying the same thing. We were just being more cautious. Do you think there might be a little bit of, of sort of a, an insurance policy approach by a couple of these publications? Because it does seem odd. Oh, to be a fly on the wall if they're having those discussions, and I, I would imagine that they are. I really wonder about that. It is a curious thing, you know, the question is, why now? The New York Times was also very late in, and I don't want to get too off topic here, but they admitted, I think, in the 23rd paragraph in an article earlier this year that the Hunter Biden laptop was real. Well, a lot of people knew that back in 2020 when the New York Post originally reported it. So is it just that they never lead with coverage and they're just playing catch up? Or is it just that they're just so beholden to ideology? 
there, when I speak with you know radical feminists and other lefty types of people who have been pushing back on this even longer than I have, but when I just when I became aware of it, they just say you can't underestimate just how much of a grip this has on left-wing institutional mind. They have sewn up the left-wing, you know, legal arena. They've left-wing jurisprudence, the courts, all of the all of their institutions on the left have been just completely bought. And so what what is causing the great breakthrough now at the New York Times? That's the million dollar question. And again, I'm glad that it's happening, but frankly, I'm a little ticked off and I don't I'm not going to have any patience for U.S. legacy media journalists who knew that this was happening. I wrote this in a piece in late August where I outlined the medical journals, several of them, peer-reviewed journal articles where the gender clinicians themselves admit to doing these disfiguring body, body disfiguring surgeries on minors. And I told, I said, I concluded, I said to the U.S. journalists, I'm just putting you on notice. You're not going to be allowed to feign ignorance and pretend that you didn't know because there were several publications that tried to tell you and it felt like screaming into the void. So if they're if they're doing any kind of strategic maneuvering and allowing themselves to sort of cover their butts or whatever, shame on you. There's no, you're going to have to earn my trust back and you'll probably never get it back because of how you were so willing to manipulate language in, in service to this dogma. So if you're hedging and doing some sort of manipulative thing, well, shame on you. I mean, I'm glad that it's finally happening, but you know, the trust is gone. Yeah, that's why it makes me wonder if what Andrew Sullivan called the herd moving is a, is a couple of people moving and a bit of the sort of suffocating conformity of the editorial boardrooms actually just, you know, just letting a few people break away in order to introduce a bit of diversity in the coverage, you know, to kind of cover their own backsides. But the reality is it's interesting what you say, because one of the aspects of this is, you know, you just mentioned that the Christian Post has allowed you to cover these issues and to do your own reporting, whereas... One of, I think, the big stories in legacy media that doesn't get discussed very often is the extent to which, you know, old guard journalists and commentators and pundits are actually now largely beholden to sort of woke younger staff members who are apt to complain that, you know, the guys in their 50s and 60s who have been there forever are in reality actually, you know, causing harm or causing damage by their positions and suffocating even sort of the editorial breadth and the width of what what people who've been there for decades could say. And so in in your in your role here in the in the media sphere, would you say that the sort of the younger generation who's been bought into this stuff and in a lot of cases weaned on this stuff, have they had a real impact on, on the reporting of, of older journalists who maybe just decided that reporting on a different issue was far less professionally dangerous, far easier to do, and just kind of accepted it? Because I know a lot of older, older journalists who just didn't know what to make of this stuff. I think that dynamic that you're articulating there generationally is a real thing. I've You mentioned Abigail Schreier's book. I've seen her joke about the New York Times not wanting to offend their cub, their cub reporters who sort of, who manipulate and just act like the narcissistic, spoiled little brats that they are. I think that's real. And of course, to make another analogy, there was that op-ed by Senator Cotton, which people were so offended by the editor who, I mean, he's a sitting United States Senator with something to say about an issue. Of course, the New York Times is a place where Senators of both parties should be able to publish, but that was too offensive for the powers that be from within the New York Times. I've wondered how much this issue has affected, I mean, Barry Weiss, who left the New York Times, who's now gone on to, I think, much better and brighter things with her own publication. I'm sure she could tell, and she has told some stories of how 
awful it was to work there. And so this kind of mentality amongst the younger generation that has been weaned on this stuff, it's it's quite totalitarian. It's quite nihilistic. It's quite dark. I, you know, I'm a millennial, so I'm still rather young. And I maybe I just am a, have an old soul or something. And I, I obviously I'm a Christian. And so that informs my my values very, very strongly about telling the truth and not giving in to ideology where language is manipulated. I, I just think the manipulation of language is one of the most unconscionable things about this whole thing. I'm more angry at the journalistic malpractice than I am even at the medical malpractice because the medical malpractice would not have happened but for the journalistic malpractice. Had there been any accountability early on, we wouldn't have seen near the amount of people who have been now irreversibly harmed, sterilized, disfigured, et cetera. So the journalists, they have a lot, they got a lot to apologize for because they really screwed up because they were willing to lie with how they reported this. So looking at what uh, you and I both hope is something of a shift and 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 i think that your your qualified optimism is probably the wise approach because i've written that i'm encouraged by you know the work that people like christopher rufo etc are doing exposing what's going on in schools but on one hand what's discouraging about it is that it's very obviously the tip of the iceberg what libs of tiktok and christopher rufo and all these people are doing and so for every video that they put out, you know, exposing the curriculum of various public schools, often in deep red states on, on transgender ideology and the gender bred person, the unicorn or whatever, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of other schools that are still quietly indoctrinating kids. This is what I wanted. I wanted your take on, because we're kind of at this weird inflection point where on one hand, the agenda is now becoming more and more clear and the legacy media is still pushing back against the exposés of those agenda and you know portraying angry parents as potential domestic terrorists and things like that. On the other hand, you have a lot of the pushback, you know, actually being championed by people like Chloe Cole and young detransitioners who are, you know, speaking in the in the phrase beloved by Marxists about their lived experiences. And so, I always think that the younger generation is is a bit of a crapshoot in some ways because on one hand, they've never they didn't grow up in a world where things were still semi-normal the way you and I did as millennials at the same time they're they're living through the real world physical emotional psychological consequences of that as well and and you and I have both interviewed enough of these people to know how miserable and how and how depressed it's often made them what would what would your take be on on the upcoming generation because yes they're far more radical but yes they've also borne the brunt of what this this ideology perpetrates on you know real physical bodies as well I'm hopeful not only in a spiritual sense because God can do miracles and I I believe very much that that there can be a restorative changes as much as there's been some systematic brainwashing and radicalizing of this younger generation I have thought in recent days that it's also for those young people who have refused to give into this brainwashing and this indoctrination, we're going to have some, some very good people who have learned how to survive this. And they'll have some really sobering stories to tell, particularly the siblings of, of people who were sucked into this experimental medicalization, the siblings, and they saw how it shattered their families they're suffering. I mean, there's just so much journalistic work to do to tell the stories of the family suffering. And I think that there's going to be amid a radical, you know, a generation that's been indoctrinated into this insane nonsense. 
that there's going to be a swath of them. They'll be really strong fighters because they've had to learn how to survive. The devil's just thrown the kitchen sink at them. And so they're going to be extra resilient. I'm hopeful for that anyway. It's not to say that the damage hasn't been great because it absolutely has. It's just, it's just crushing what's happening to so many families these days. So I'm hopeful for a turnaround before we get too ahead of ourselves and talk about what might yet happen. We as a culture need to just pause and once this and take and take full stock, take a full evaluation of all that has happened and really have a sober look at what was allowed to happen and why and why it should never happen again before we just move on from this like i'm not content to let the legacy the legacy media and the institutions that peddled this horror memory hold this no ma'am no sir there needs to be accountability in the same way that everybody was all upset about that let there be a pandemic amnesty in the atlantic thing a couple of weeks ago i feel the same about transgender stuff it's like no you're we're not just going to let you move on from this and pretend that this never happened. I, I think there needs to be some serious, serious accountability on the legal front that people really need to pay for their crimes in some instances. There are people that need to be sued into oblivion. There are people that, need, especially doctors, they need to have their license pulled and never be allowed to practice medicine ever again. I mean, the carnage is going to be quite brutal to sift through. And I think we're just now starting to see some of that again with more and more detransitioners starting to speak about how they were harmed and gravely so. So let's talk the practical response to a lot of this. So on one hand, you've had a handful of, of plucky publications and intrepid journalists like yourself and a handful of other publications I could also mention. I know the Epoch Times is currently doing great work tracking down and interviewing detransitioners. So there's a few publications that have been that have been on this almost since the beginning. That's one aspect. Then you have the activists, which would include folks like, you know, Matt Walsh, who is now hosting rallies where detransitioners speak, Christopher Rufo exposing the gender ideology. And you're starting to get legislation from a handful of Republican governors that are banning these surgeries. You have the the testimony of detransitioners resulting in the Florida Medical Board banning transition. And then you, of course, have the lawsuit that you mentioned earlier. And, of course, we hope a wave of these will follow. We see this happening in the U.K., where there's probably going to be a thousand families suing the the Tavistock Gender Clinic of the National Health Service for transitioning kids too fast. So there's all of these different different sort of tactical strategies in play against the trans movement over against what we've just been discussing, which would be the the up until now monolithic support of the legacy media, the complete and total ownership of the Democratic Party, which transitioned right along with everybody else. You've got the institutional accomplices in the universities and a lot of the professors who, to be fair to them, probably believed this stuff a lot longer than we knew. And, and you've got the medical establishment, which is making absolutely fistfuls of cash doing this to kids. So from a practical perspective, what needs to happen in order for us to get to this day of reckoning and accountability that you're referring to? And we might not be able to see it happening now, but what would you say needs to happen in order for the house of cards, as you put it, to come crashing down? Well, I've long believed that this is going to take an act of God to stop. And so I'm praying for that day. And so, of course, I'm also aware of the story of David and Goliath, where one little rock hit hit the giant squarely in the forehead and he fell. And so, okay, so there might be a silver bullet like that. And who knows, just maybe there will be something that will be shared on libs of TikTok or 
one of these guys who's making a lot of noise with a lot of visibility now will do something that'll just somehow awaken the conscience of our nation that this has been a horrible experiment and an atrocity from from day one. I don't know what that is, but on the legal side of things, you mentioned Florida and a patchwork of other states, uh, well, a, a handful of other states. I am concerned, and I know others share this concern, that while these laws are well-intended, the gender identity activists have masterfully found a way to what one friend of mine calls covering all the exits. They figured out any way to sort of escape any kind of accountability. And so these laws that are being passed in states like Arkansas and Alabama, and I believe Tennessee is considering one, and there have been some actions, I believe, in Texas and, um, and in Florida, you mentioned, these lawsuits will be filed, and they have been filed in the case of Arkansas and I believe Alabama, again, by the ACLU. And so they're going to be hamstrung in the courts for who knows how long. Now, with the current configuration of the United States Supreme Court, I think that these laws have a pretty good chance of surviving since it's a conservative majority Supreme Court, but you never quite know. And so Florida, I think, has probably done the most prudent thing in that they have had their medical board review the evidence, which is very flimsy, that treating dysphoric children with synthetic hormones and surgeries is good. I mean, they've, they've basically condemned it from the top down. And so now that has provided air cover of sorts if the Florida state legislature decides to move forward with some kind of legal prohibition on this kind of thing. So since the medical board has already come out swinging against it, they're in better shape to survive court challenges in the way that I think Arkansas and Alabama maybe may not be. But So people are concerned that you'll have a patchwork of well-intended but kind of messy laws. But look, I salute anyone and everyone who is trying to help stop the irreversible damage to children. Legal remedies, whether that's making it into a felony or extending the statute of limitations so that detransitioners who are trans as minors can sue and have a larger window where they can sue the people to make it too financially cost prohibitive for the people who shouldn't be called doctors because I think calling them doctors confers a sense of dignity upon them that they don't deserve because this is definitely not ethical medicine, it's experimental medicalization. So I'm for any and all remedies, but ultimately I think it's going to have to be divine intervention because this evil is the top down and the church needs to pray and storm the heavens and trust that as we continue to intercede, God will hear from heaven and this work of darkness will be destroyed. Because I don't think it gets much worse than experimenting and medically abusing children. It's some of the worst, worst treatment of children that you can imagine. Just what these drugs and surgeries put them through. It's absolutely cruel and horrific. I've, I've seen some of the pictures of these poor young people and it just sends me into a very dark place. I, you just come face to face with raw, vile evil because that's what this is. I do believe that the time is coming soon when the tipping point is. I wish I knew when, I don't, but we're getting close. And it's a testimony to the hard work of many, many people from across the political spectrum who have just refused to shut up about this. It's very obvious from the way you talk about it how passionate and how angry you are about this issue. Maybe share with us a couple of the personal stories that you've been told during your journalistic work that have impacted you the most profoundly. I am angry about it. And it, who can't? I mean, I don't know how you can't be. I mean, I mean when I, seriously, something inside me snapped when I learned that they were giving children drugs to block their normal natural puberty. I mean, what the heck? 
Who thinks of this stuff? And there's that, that line from the Apostle Paul where he talks about the wicked who, you know, invent new ways of doing evil. Well, if this isn't that, nothing is. And um, I'll, just to give you one story, I, I know a mom, I've met a mom whose daughter got sucked into this kind of thing at her school. And I think at age 12 or 13, joined the, what was once the Gay Straight Alliance and is now, I think, the Gender and Sexuality Alliance Club at school. She became indoctrinated into this nonsense. And in just a matter of days, it seemed, she went from being a sweet girl to a quote-unquote pansexual man. It was this transidentification, you know, stuff that she got mired in. Well, an endocrinologist, I don't know how this happened, but apparently taught her how to shoot up testosterone. She ran away from home and went to Oregon and as a minor was able to change her name and legal gender in court because I believe in Oregon they've lowered the age of majority to 15. So she was allowed to do that as a runaway minor, a minor by any sort of national standard, change her name and legal gender obtain hormones, use those hormones, get her breasts cut off and her entire reproductive system cut out, Medicaid paid for it all. And then at I think age 18 or 19, she underwent the radial forearm phalloplasty where they harvest forearm tissue to make a simulacrum of a penis. I've seen pictures of this poor girl. I just, I mean, it's just, when you see the carnage and what doctors are doing to vulnerable young people, I think this girl is also on the autism spectrum, if my memory is correct, and many autistic people are being enticed down this path. It's just, I mean, I just feel like I've stared into the fourth circle of hell, Jonathan. I mean, it's just, could there be anything more evil than to prey upon the innocence of a child and carve up their bodies in pursuit of a physiological impossibility and render them sterile. We woke up within this nightmare and I just won't have it on my conscience to not speak out about this medical abuse because it's some of the worst evil I have ever seen. And when you see it and when you hear the cries and you hear the wails and the screams of the parents who are watching their kids disintegrate right before their eyes and they're powerless to stop it because all the institutions around them are reinforcing their confusion. I just don't know how you can keep silent about it. I just, I just don't get it. Tell us a little bit about what it's like for the parents to go through with it, because you said there's a lot of journalistic work to be done on this front. And it's interesting. There's almost like this anonymous underground network of parents who are desperate. They won't be named. They've got these sub stacks, parents speaking against transgender ideology where they share their stories. Almost never do they include their names. You've interviewed some. I know the Federalist has published a few. Most mainstream publications completely ignore them. But these parents really are going through something truly hellish, which, as you very aptly described it, is like watching their children disintegrate before their eyes. I've heard one parent describe it as an exquisite form of torture. I can see the faces of moms and dads with whom I've had in my home for dinner and spoken with. They're absolutely disheveled and exhausted and tormented. And I literally, I think about them every night before I go to sleep and I pray and I cry out to God that somehow they'll get some justice and that their kids will return to them. There's just nothing like it. And I think one of the reasons that it is so torturous is that this is still all so new. If you have a death in a family member, the community knows how to surround you with love and comfort and support. Whereas with this, people still don't really understand it, or they have been trained that if parents object to it, especially if you live in a liberal area, to regard the parents as as bigots. And so they actually add to the suffering the community does, especially if you live in a 
a deep blue sea in a, deep, in a very liberal area. And even the good therapists and counselors and doctors, a lot of them are just trying to figure this all out and don't even really know how to help because this is such a, it's a new area that has just exploded. And just, and just to underline the point that I'm making now, I spoke with a detransitioner not so long ago who, when she was transitioning, she was undergoing this experimental drug regimen, gave her massive, massive kidney issues to the point where the gender clinician told her that he had never seen a young woman with that many kidney stones and you know problems with her kidneys. And so she then started detransitioning because she was just in such excruciating pain from what all the testosterone and the hormones were doing to her body. But now she's being treated by some good doctors and endocrinologists who are trying their best to help her. But even they don't really know what to do because they can measure her hormone levels and, you know, help her as much as they can, you know, balance her hormones and take her blood work and help her in her recovery. But once you mess with your endocrine system, it's a kind of a delicate ecosystem, as I like to say, it's, it's all been an experiment. And so it's just kind of, they don't have any data or they don't know really what to do. So even the people who want to help don't know how to help. And parents are just screaming, stop, stop, stop. No. And the, the powerlessness, I think, is what's most debilitating because their kids have been brainwashed into this and they don't know what to do. They can't convince them that this is all a lie because they've been told that any any objection is bigotry. They're fighting on every side and the, the damage to their, their children's bodies is permanent and irreversible. It's, 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 it's a heartache to know that I mean, parents who dreamed of being grandparents will never be grandparents if they have only one child and their daughter or their son is now sterile. I mean, it's just, it's just, there's no way to adequately describe it because of just how bad it is. And then you've got states like California who are actually threatening to take away kids from parents who aren't what? Whitley affirming of their children's desire for transition? The new law that was just signed recently, which has made that state effectively a trans sanctuary state where young people from other states, presumably those like Arkansas and Florida, which have taken action against this movement, they can then come to California and receive those drugs and surgeries. I'm not sure what the final version of that bill provided for, but at least at one point in the process, the California state courts would have been empowered to sever those parental rights, parents from out of state. And so even if you think you can escape a tyrannical state law, there's other states are not going to protect you necessarily if your your child manages to get to California. But even before that law went into effect, the state social services agencies have taken this power for themselves and intervened in family situations in extremely ugly ways. Most, the example that comes to mind was a California resident, Abigail Martinez, who's featured in Tucker Carlson's documentary film. The state social services agency intervened and removed her then 16-year-old daughter from her custody so that she could go on these hormones because she objected to them as a parent. The schools played an integral role in that. Then the Department of Social Services took her out of custody and put her in a group home so she could go on the hormones. But of course, those hormones didn't help her. And that poor girl at age 19 wound up kneeling in front of a train and took her own life. And that poor mom had to get the phone call that is every parent's worst nightmare that her daughter was dead on the railroad tracks and they were retrieving the pieces of her daughter's shattered body from the impact of the train. That's what this ideology results in, death and destruction. It needs to be resisted with every every ounce of enthusiasm you can you can possibly muster because it's only leaving a trail of tears and heartache in its wake.
So for people who are listening to this, where would you advise that they start? And educating themselves on the issue, besides, of course, following your own reporting, but also just, you know, doing their own small part to to engage in the resistance that you're so actively engaged in. Well, if they're Christians, I would recommend that the first place they start is on their knees and they just make this a regular part of their prayer life, because I, I genuinely believe that the prayers of the people will dethrone this wickedness in high places. And so I believe in very much in the power of prayer. And we need to understand the spiritual realities of what we are facing as, as believers in Jesus Christ. So that's first. Educating yourself, as you mentioned, that's probably the second thing they should do. And they have to understand that it is as bad as I'm saying and probably worse. I can only imagine what's still going on in the shadows. I've seen, you know, NIH you know, documents where if studies have shown that they're you know, lowering the age for cross-sex hormones as low as eight years old. That was unearthed in, I think, 2018 or 19, where they found that. So understand that as you learn about this and you realize the horrors that are going on, multiply that by three or four, and then you're probably about right as to how, how bad things really are. And understand that every parent that comes and talks to me, almost all of them say, I never thought that something like this could happen to me. They, no one ever thinks that this is going to affect them, but this absolutely could affect your family, even if you live in a very conservative area where this thing is still frowned upon for to varying degrees. This is absolutely anywhere your kids are, wherever there's Wi-Fi, this is affecting your kids. And on that note, I would just suggest to all parents who are listening to me, get your kids off social media, get them off tech. It's absolutely poisonous. It's not doing them any good, especially if they have a phone, just do not allow them to have a phone, limit their internet access, sever that as much as you possibly can. And then I think the, the last thing that I would advise them to do is find some way to speak out and use your voice. They can't shut us all up. But, and if there's a critical mass of voices that rise and we just refuse to shut up, I believe that if we can be heard, we will win. The, the media works so hard to suppress any kind of critical scrutiny and the tide that is starting to turn now, the fact that the New York Times has introduced some criticism of blockers and all that is, is showing that we dedicated few who have refused to shut up have had some measure of success, but we need more and more people to raise their voices too, because I think there are a lot of people that are suffering in silence because they're afraid they'll be fired from their jobs. And so even if you can't, you know, speak out, out because you have a family to feed, figure out some way, support other parents who are going through this, figure out some way, ask God how you might support some kind of cause, because the more people that speak up, the better. Brandon, thank you so much for this conversation. and Thank you for your work. Thank you, Jonathan. Pleasure to join you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Brandon Showalter, a senior investigative reporter with The Christian Post. Thanks for joining us this week. And if you want to check out past shows or subscribe to future shows on similar topics, head over to LifeSiteNews.com. Click on the podcast tab. You can find our podcast there. We do hope you'll join us again next week.